And Catherine's going to come and read to us from verse 1 through to verse 15. And the title is The Three Visitors. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may wash, all, wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seas of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? they asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid. So she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. Well, thanks, Catherine. And uh, can I extend my welcome to particularly to Andy and Sophie's family and friends. It's great to have many of you with us today. And I hope you'll stick around after the service, enjoy some refreshments with us. Um, it's great to be together. Just to say, Wellesley prayed earlier about the Muslim world that we're praying for through Ramadan. Um, I'm heading to High Wycombe tomorrow evening um, to uh, Amjad and Sarah's house to support them in their ministry as they reach out to people from Muslim backgrounds who've come to faith in Jesus. For many, that leads them to all sorts of difficulties. I'm taking a car down, so if uh, others want to come with me, you'd be really welcome. Just have a word with me. Um, we need to be there for about half past six for some food. Uh, and then it'll go on through the evening. So if you want to come with me and encourage them and uh, meet some of these wonderful people with wonderful testimonies, then you'd be really welcome. Great. Well, if you're joining us in this series, we're continuing in the life of Abraham. Uh, You might know the song, Abraham Had Many Sons, and that's the Abraham we're talking about here. Last week, we were in chapters uh, 16 and 17, and we jumped through to chapter 21. This week, we're going to reverse a little bit and go in to look at chapters 18 that was read just now, the first part, and chapter 19. Uh, If you remember last week, we were exploring the whole idea of doubts 
And I was asking us to think about all the different uh, situations in our life where we doubt, particularly where we doubt God. And the three most common ones I suggested where we doubt God when we face the impossible, forgetting that God is the God of the impossible. Secondly, we doubt God when we cannot see the future and we're not in control. And thirdly, we doubt God often when his timing is different to ours. And uh, we, we met in our passage this man Abraham, his wife Sarah, who, was re- who were wrestling with God. I asked us another question, do you trust in the promises of God? And most people would be able to nod with me and go, yes, of course I do. But then deep in our hearts we go, well, but I struggle. So there's this wrestling match going on between intellectually I do trust the promises of God, but in reality I often struggle. And that wrestling that goes on in your heart is the same wrestling that was going on in the heart of Abraham and Sarah. But what did we learn at the end of last week into chapter 21? God answered his or fulfilled his promise he'd made to Abraham. He promised that he would have a son through whom whom he'd build a great nation. And Abraham and Sarah were very, very old, well past childbearing age. And they said, it's impossible. But we started in chapter one with those amazing words. And the Lord was gracious to Sarah just as he had said. So come to chapter 18, because we go back into this wrestling that Sarah and Abraham are having with God. And notice, God makes this great statement again, this time next year, Sarah will have a son. And what does Sarah think? She's 90 odd years old. What's she saying in the back of her heart? In the quietness of her heart, she's laughing and going, well, it's impossible. I'm well past it. There's no way that I'll ever give birth. But how did God respond? And we just had that read. Is anything too hard for the Lord? On the screen is the the impossible box. It's just impossible. I want you in your imagination now to write in that box, you're impossible. Maybe it's a health situation you're facing and it just looks impossible. Maybe it's a relationship that is so strained, the outcome that you long for just seems impossible. Maybe it's something completely different. Right into that box, you're impossible. We're going to come to this towards the end of this morning. Because as we look at chapters 18 and 19, primarily we're going to look at three things we learn about the character of God. I made the point last week, promises that anybody makes are only ever as powerful and reliable as the person who makes them. And so as we look in this chapter and chapter 19 and we learn three wonderful things about the character of God, it will encourage us with whatever it is in our life that is impossible because he wants to speak truth into it. Here's the first one then. The first truth I want us to explore in this chapter about God is that God sees everything. Uh, Would any of you put your hand up and, and say you grew up with a mother who had eyes in the back of her head? There we go, Marvina. Sandra says you have eyes in the back of your head. Some of the teenagers out there are smirking. They don't get away with anything. Uh, my wife has eyes in the back of her head, and not just in the back of her head, but in every room in the house. I get away with nothing. It's a wonderful gift. Now, that's a bit of a, of a joke, but look at these two verses in the Bible that tell us about God who sees everything. Just think about the depth of this verse. Nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Just let that sink in, that truth. Or this one that becomes a bit more personal in Proverbs 5. A person's ways are on full view of the Lord. 
That's frightening, isn't it? Sometimes we think, well, we're one of seven billion people. Surely God's more interested in the important people. He hasn't got his eyes on me. But the Bible teaches us that God sees absolutely everything all of the time. Come to our passage, chapter 18, verse 12. When God says, this time next year you'll have a son, how does Sarah respond? She laughs to herself because she doubts that God can do the impossible. There's no way that I'll be able to give birth at 90-odd years old. And then in verse 15 we read that because Sarah was afraid, she lied. Oh, I, did, I didn't laugh. And what did God say, very matter of fact? Yes, you did laugh. And the point is, this wasn't a laugh in front of him, it was a laugh in her heart that no one could see, but God saw it. He sees everything, because he's the sovereign creator of every atom in the cosmos. This passage teaches us that God sees everything, and he sees into our hearts And I wonder this morning, as he sees into your heart, what does he see? As he looks into my heart, what does he see? And that God looks into our heart and sees everything is illustrated in the passage, which we haven't had read, but into chapter 19, in this very difficult passage, which I'm going to reflect on now, reflecting on the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Back in chapter 13, we read this about the people of Sodom. Now, the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Sodom was the city, if you remember, that the nephew of Abraham, Lot, had gone to settle in. And it became a very, very depraved city, a godless city, where people were just pursuing their own agendas all of the time. And you notice just from that verse that sin is not just the wrong stuff that I do. Sin is deeply relational. Here where the people of Sodom are described, they're described as people who are wicked, who have sinned against the Lord. It's not like God is a God who has a kind of tally chart and he gives you a tick every time you do something good and he gives you a cross every time you do something wrong. As if if you do more good than bad, it kind of outweighs it. It's much deeper than that. It's about relationship. Every time we reject God, we're turning away from him and that relationship is broken. Or reflect on the words of Ezekiel, one of the other prophets, who says in chapter 16 of his prophecy, This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They didn't help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Take all this together. What it's saying is sin is not so much what I do. It's more an attitude of the heart. It's the the sins that I commit and it's the sins that I omit. The good, the bad that I shouldn't do and the good that I should do that I don't do. It's an attitude of our heart that rejects our sovereign creator. And just notice as we look into chapter 19 where we are taken when we reject God. Where does it ultimately potentially lead us? And it's utterly horrific. Come to chapter 19 and this will shock you. It's one of the most shocking things in the Bible. But it's here and we have to handle it and try and make sense of it. Chapter 19. This wasn't read, but I'll read it now. Two angels arrive in Sodom. These are messengers from God. And they come to Lot's house, the nephew of Abraham. Verse 4. That night, men from the city surround the house, knowing strangers are in town. Now, they haven't come to their house because they want to greet the strangers. Ah, there's new people in our community. We want to welcome them in. We want to invite them to our home for some hospitality. They've got a very difficult and nasty agenda. Verse 5, they appeal for these messengers from God to come out so that these men could have sex with them. What's on view, if you read it carefully, is horrific. It's gang rape. That these visitors have arrived in this foreign city 
And the local people have not seen them as visitors to welcome and bless, but visitors who they can abuse for their own gratification. It's utterly horrific. It should make you feel sick. But it's here. And then the pressure increases, verse 9, because Lot says, I'm not sending them out to you for that um, that sick thing. And so they then threaten to break down the door. So, so desperate is their intent on the way that they want to live their life and fulfilling their pleasure. And then Lot, in a, in a moment of madness almost, in desperation, says, look, I'll just give you my daughters, but don't hurt these visitors. It's shocking. You think, what's going through in your head? But as you read this passage, it should move you, and you think, that is awful. But back in chapter 18, we read that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous. What I want us to see from this really shocking passage is that our rejection of God is deeply relational. And it leads to something very, very serious and degrading. I'm not suggesting for a moment that sexual abuse is on the radar of anybody here. But I think what it does teach us is if I start by rejecting God and continue... Vain. It can take me to a place of utter horror, where I'm so consumed with self, nothing really matters. It's all about me and my pleasure. That's what, I, we, ha- what we can learn from this passage. And it is shocking, isn't it? But we've got to recognize that God sees everything. And ask us the question, what does God see when he looks into our heart? And the truth is, he sees people who reject him all the time. We all turn our back on God and he sees it. It's not hidden things that are behind closed doors that he doesn't see. He sees everything. He sees the dirt in my heart, all those wrong attitudes. He sees it all and he sees yours. That's the first thing we see about God's character. It's an amazing thing. He sees everything. I mean, think of the, the, the glorious truth that that reveals. That means there's not a single tear that you cry and God doesn't see it. There's not an emotion that you feel in hurt that God doesn't care about. But it also means he sees the wrong in our hearts and he cares about it. Second thing we learn about his character is that he takes this rejection of him really seriously. Here's a question for you to reflect on. When God responds seriously to our rejection of him, what does it tell us about his character? I think it tells us that he is passionate for what is right which is why he wants to react against all that is wrong. And secondly, I think it teaches us that he is desperate to put right that which is wrong. Think about a parent and a child relationship. When a child is obnoxious to a parent, or a child is disobedient to a parent, no one here would say, well, it's just loving to never challenge the child, to never rebuke the challenge with a firm word, with whatever discipline that you exercise as a parent. None of us would say that is loving. What we say is, Discipline is loving. And it's right to judge a child when they make a mistake because they need to learn. Well, why should it be any different with God? Indeed, should it not be even more so with the living God? When we turn our back on him, he's committed to what is right and he's committed to reversing and changing that which is wrong. And we read in chapter 19 that the outcry against the Lord from this people is so great that he has sent these angels to destroy this whole city. Now, this isn't God flying off the handle in rage. He's repeatedly warned this nation, and they've repeatedly turned their back on him. And you've seen the extent of their depravity by ignoring him. And then you read these difficult words in chapter 19. Uh, God rescues Lot and and says to him, listen, you need to get out of the city because the Lord is going to rain down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. 
from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. And you read this and it's shocking again. Why would God do that? Why would God punish people in such a almost violent way? It should get your the hairs on the back of your neck up. You should be asking questions. Is this really the God that I know? But it's an expression of God's commitment to deal with everything that is not right. God is not a God who can just sweep under the carpet our disobedience. Listen to the words of this lady, Fleming Rutledge, who's a wonderful Bible scholar and has written a really good book on the crucifixion. She writes this. If you and I are resistant to the idea of the wrath of God... We might pause to reflect the next time we are outraged by something, when our property values fall, when our children's educational opportunities become limited, when our tax bill is higher than we would want. All of us are capable of anger at something. We'd admit that, right? But she goes on and says, but God's anger is pure. It's not an emotion that flares up from time to time as though God has a temper tantrum. It's a way of describing his absolute hatred of all that is wrong and his commitment to putting it right. So when you see this shocking passage of God determined to put things right, it's actually a function of his holiness and love saying, I'm not just going to pass a blind eye. Rejection of me is so serious. I'm going to deal with it. Well, there's two aspects of the character of God and they're quite heavy. They're quite chilling. They're quite challenging. God sees everything, which means he sees into my heart and he takes my rejection of him really seriously, which means I've got a problem. But here's the third thing you learn about the character of God from this passage, and it's absolutely awesome and should make your heart skip. We learn that God is an incredibly merciful God. Grace and mercy, two kind of Bible words that are used a huge amount. Grace, think of gift, begins with G, G G, gift, grace. Grace is the gift that God gives me that I don't deserve. Forgiveness, love, a second chance. Mercy is that which I do deserve, his right judgment on all that's wrong in my heart, which he doesn't give me. Grace is what he gives me that I don't deserve. Mercy is what he doesn't give me that I do deserve. Would you notice here in in chapter 19, God in his mercy chooses to rescue Lot and his family. With the coming of the dawn, verse 15, the angels urge Lot, hurry, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, otherwise you're going to be swept away Swept away when this city is punished. When he hesitated, the man grasped his hands and the hands of his wife and the two daughters and led them safely out of the city. Here's why. For the Lord was merciful to them. But why? Have a look at chapter 19, verse 29. Why was God merciful? We read chapter 19, verse 29. When God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overflew, overflowed the cities. He didn't remember Lot because Lot was right in his eyes. He remembered Lot because he remembered the promise that he had made to Abraham that he would build a great nation. When God shows mercy to people who don't deserve it, me and you, why does he do it? What has he remembered? The Bible teaches us he's remembered his promise to us. 
Notice Abraham in, back in chapter 18. If you just skip back a little bit, go back to chapter 18. Abraham is kind of reasoning with God. And he asked him a series of questions to which God responds. Have a look at chapter 18 from verse 23. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So he's saying to God, God, is your anger at sin so uncontrollable? Is there no way of escape from your right anger? And so he bargains with God a little bit. He says, verse 24, listen, God, if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom, would you not rescue the whole city for their sake? And what does God say in verse 26? If I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham pushes it a bit further. Okay, if there were 45 people in the city, would you save the whole city on the basis of 45 righteous people? And God says, yes, I would. And he says, okay, God, what happens if there were 30 people? Yes, I would. What happens if there are 20 people? Yes, I would. What happens, Lord? I'm pushing it now, he thinks. If there's just 10 righteous people in the whole of Sodom, would you spare Sodom for the sake of the 10 righteous? And God answers, verse 32, for the sake of the 10, I will not destroy it. Here's the truth. Everybody in Sodom deserved God's right judgment. And even Lot and his family did. Look at the end of chapter 19. It's horrific. This is after they have been rescued. After God has poured out his love, his mercy and his grace on Lot and his daughters. What happens? This is another horrific thing in the Bible. These daughters get their father drunk and sleep with with him. You're going, what? You've just been rescued. And you've just turned your back on God again. The point is, no one in Sodom, including Lot and his family deserve the mercy of God and the apostle Paul tells us this same thing in chapter 3 of his letter to the Romans he says no one is righteous not even one there's no one who understands there's no one who seeks God all have turned away they've together become worthless there is no one who does good not even one worthless there is not talking about no value no dignity in the eyes of God quite the opposite it's talking about no longer living with God at the center living out what it means to be made in the image of God. And this is a challenging verse because Paul says there's not a single person on the planet who has not rejected a loving rule of a loving creator. And that means that you and I deserve this right judgment from God. We deserve for God to deal with all the mess in our heart that leads to all the attitudes that have caused so much brokenness in the world. And yet, and this is where the Christian faith is so awesome, And yet, even though I deserve it, what does God give me? He gives me his mercy. He doesn't give his mercy to good people or to people who deserve it. He offers his mercy to all who will turn back to him. And look at what Abraham says in chapter 18, verse 25. As he reflects on the character of God, he says, Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? It's this heart-rending plea from Abraham. Surely, Lord, you will do what is right. But the astonishing thing in chapters 18 and 19 is God does not do what is right in the sense of what would be right, the right punishment for all that they deserve and the right that we deserve. In fact, God does the complete opposite. He shows incredible mercy. And that is an amazing truth. The Bible teaches that we'll all be judged by God. Why? Because of the first thing we looked at this morning. God sees everything. He sees my heart. So there's nothing I can do or think that escapes him. He sees it. 
And because of who he is and how passionate he is for his glory, for his holiness, for us to live in his image, because that is where the place of great joy and freedom and peace comes from, he has to deal with that which is not right, which means he's got to deal with me. And yet he doesn't deal with me as I deserve. He extends the most extraordinary mercy to me. Think of how he treated Lot and Lot's family. As I said earlier, they were not rescued because they deserved it. You see the extent of their depravity at the end of chapter 19. They were rescued because God had incredible mercy on them. So as we finish, I want you to go back to your impossible. Maybe you've put into that box a health issue and a relationship issue. And God promises to show you mercy. That's a really difficult truth because God is not promising necessarily to heal you from that illness. He can and he can do the miraculous, but he doesn't always. He's not necessarily promising to remove you from that really painful relationship that causes so much strain. But here's the thing he does promise. He does promise to give you his mercy in the form of himself. He may not remove you from your pain and suffering, but he always gives you himself. He is the great comforter who wraps his arms around broken people and shows them mercy. That is a God of love. And he doesn't show you mercy because you're good or you're religious or you're a Christian or you do good things or you give money to charity or you're kind. He gives you mercy because he's a merciful God. But actually, if you think about it's just impossible. What is the greatest impossibility that perhaps we should have written in the box? The greatest impossibility really is that God loves me and that he would show me mercy because I don't deserve it. That is the greatest impossibility. And yet, as we learned at the beginning, as God dialected or dialogued with Sarah, nothing is impossible for God. So when I say my biggest problem is that I don't deserve to be loved and I don't deserve God's mercy... It's impossible. God says, no, it's not. Nothing's impossible for me. My love goes so deep that it doesn't matter how much you've rejected me, I'll pursue you and I'll forgive you. Sometimes we just sentimentalize the love of God. Oh, he just loves me. Isn't that nice? I sing nursery rhymes about God's love. God's love in the Bible is so robust. He loves you more than a husband or wife could love you, more than a child could love you. He loves you more than you could love you. That is the extent of his love. And it's a love that can carry you through your biggest problem, which is death. Because Jesus Christ himself smashed death to pieces on the cross and rose again to give new life. That is the robust love of God. In chapter 16 and 17 last week, we saw a God who meets us in our doubts with his grace. And in chapters... 18 and 19, we see a God who meets us in our rebellion with his mercy. For the majority here who've already put your trust in Jesus, I pray that as you continue to reflect on this passage, it will re-excite your heart with the extraordinary depth of the love that God has for you. Because he shows you mercy when you doubt, and he shows, uh, he shows you grace when you doubt, and he shows you mercy when you continue to reject him. But I want to speak too to those who are here and perhaps you just think this is all very new to me or I've never thought about this before. Maybe you've got a stereotype of the Christian faith. It's just good people who are religious, who go to church on Sunday, read their Bible from time to time and give a bit of money to charity. That's not the Christian faith at all. The Christian faith is not a religion 
all about the good that I do so God loves me. It's about a relationship with the living God, a relationship which God alone can restore. And it's that relationship that is the source of all joy, the source of all peace. And it's that relationship and that love, particularly the grace and the mercy that he wants to show us that you will not find anywhere in the world outside of him. So I pray this morning that you will know very deeply in your heart the grace of God that meets you in your doubts. And I pray too that you will know very really in your heart the mercy of God that meets you in your rebellion. We worship a living God and he loves you in the most extraordinary way. And we must never ever forget that.